So I'm back. You guys know what it is. Dr. Ashley Dash here, founder of National Black Man Day. We cannot, when I say cannot, we cannot talk about Black men without talking about Dr. H. Gene Wright, okay? So go ahead, come on in, come in close, come in close. Make sure you have a piece of paper, a pencil, a pen, a stylus, your phone, whatever you need to take notes and listen very closely to everything that's about to happen because it's about to be transformative and it's about to change your life. So Mr. Wright, excuse me, Dr. Wright, let me put some respect on your name. Let's go ahead and get your interview started. Let's go. And thank you, Dr. Dash, for that wonderful introduction. And here we have, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Gene. Dr. Gene, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I am doing quite well. I'm looking forward to our conversation. We have a few laughs behind the scenes, so I know this is going to be a dynamic conversation. So we're going to get right into it. Uh, who is Dr. Gene Wright II? I am a, a black man in America that has recognized the challenges that come with that title or that label. I uh, was born and raised in a small rural town in Germantown, Ohio, uh, where my grandparents uh, matriculated to that place. And uh, the first African-American family, in, I believe in the early 1930s in a German village and so I come from a, a people and a heritage that is used to making bold moves and believing in all that they can be and believing that they belong wherever it is that they set foot and wherever God places them. And so for my grandparents on my father's side, my grandparents on my mother's side, I have inherited a legacy of uh, knowing who I am and what I want to be and knowing that it was to serve. And so with all the degrees and accolades and other things that people measure themselves by, I don't measure myself by titles or by degrees or by letters. I measure myself by how effective I can be as a servant leader in my community. That's who Dr. Gene is. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I have no more questions. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Ve very well said. <laughs> That's who I am, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always looking for new mentors, so for sure. Um, that That's great, man, um, that you come from such a strong background um, and you know who you are. Um, you know, this, this thing we call life, especially being a black man in the United States of America, can be very strenuous, very stressful, and oftentimes it is hard to discover who you are because you're just trying to survive day to day. Like, you know, who has time to think about who they quote unquote are. But um, I'm glad you said that. And, you know, that's an important point, you know, for all the brothers out there watching right now, you do need to take time for some self-discovery and some self-reflection because who you are is going to be the legacy that you leave behind when you're no longer here or for your family and friends to remember you by. So you need to Absolutely. definitely take some time for yourself. Absolutely. Man, all right, Dr. Gene, you wear many, 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 many hats, and I just want to go through these 
um, because they're very interesting, um, especially this first one. So you are the deputy commissioner for the Philadelphia Department of Behavioral Health and Intellectual Disability Services. Now, I went yeah. to middle school and high school in Philly. Yeah. So when I saw Philly, I was like, yeah. <laughs> Philly in the house. <laughs> Philly in the house. So what does that role entail and how did that come about for you? First of all, you said it very well. Say that five times quickly. Uh, yeah, we just go DBHIDS. It makes it easier on people. But my role uh, as the deputy commissioner is to oversee the, the behavioral health system in Philadelphia, along with the commissioner and their other uh, deputies. And I'm also the director of behavioral health and justice division. And so uh, that really entails my uh, making sure that citizens of Philadelphia that may be returning back to the community from incarceration, which is the criminal justice side, or psychiatric hospitalization, which is the civil justice side. And so for your uh, uh, viewers and listeners, uh, forensic and or justice is not just criminal, mm -hmm. it's also civil. There are people who are legally uh, in <clears throat> situations that uh, impact their mental health, but they haven't broken any laws, and so that's civil. And so I oversee the programs, initiatives, and resources for all citizens returning back to Philadelphia. So it's my job to make sure that people can not just re-enter the community, but mm -hmm. reintegrate. Trust me, anybody can re-enter a community. All you need is release papers or a discharge date. But reintegration, on the other hand, yeah. is being reconnected. And so I see my job as not just overseeing services, resources, and opportunity. I also see my job as making sure that those resources, opportunities, connect to the right people so that they have every opportunity, like any other citizen in Philadelphia, to get back on their feet, reconnect with their families, get their education, connect to viable employment, secure and stable housing. All of those things that some of us take for granted. Yeah but you lose or lose sight of when you're incarcerated and or uh, dealing with some serious behavioral health challenges. And so that's sort of in a nutshell, there's so many other things that, that happen because of that role, but that's, that's what I really cherish is the opportunity to make a difference in uh, families, communities, and in individual lives. That is spectacular um, and definitely heavily, heavily, heavily needed, especially nowadays where you know, it's not new to you, but newer to someone like me. I'm, I'll be 38 this year. But within like this last, I would say, eight years of my life, mental health and things of that nature have really been on the forefront. Um, people are way more talking about their mental health publicly. Yes. And we're starting to understand that, you know, it's okay that I have these problems. And one of the issues was just lack of resources or not knowing yes. where to go. So, you know, to hear... What you're saying and know that programs out there like that exist because i'm like if it exists here you know you might not be in philadelphia check your state or your city where you are and see if something is there more than likely something is there for you um so those of you out there who may be going through that or you know somebody who's going through that there you go you know always take the next step there's probably a program or something out there that you can take advantage well not take advantage of but utilize to help get you back to where you need to be no, you're absolutely right. And I think the thing, especially in the BIPOC community, which is not just African-American, of course, but also uh, other people of color, you know, when you think of Black and Indigenous folks and, and folks in the community, 
And, and so that national saying that people say, it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. Um, you really got to take that serious, especially in the black community where we have um, a lot of uh, negative history dealing with uh, research and dealing with uh, the medical profession, so to speak, and, yeah. <clears throat> and dealing with uh, mental health uh, challenges and all that, because we haven't been treated particularly well <laughs> over, over the decades and centuries. And so um, there's a lot of people in our communities that will not seek help. I mean, when we got people that won't go to the dentist unless they can't chew on either side of their mouth. Yes. So <laughs> let yes. alone taking advantage of the services that you and I are discussing in terms of my role. Um, and so, and then of course, men, I mean, you know, black men, you know, we, hey, you know, we got to get ultimatums for us from our significant others or somebody <laughs> yeah, before yeah. we go see a doctor. Yep. You know what I mean? And so it's okay to not be okay. Stress, uh, even before COVID, being black in America is stressful. Yes. And so you need to check up. Yeah, I say a, a check up from the neck up, so to speak. Uh, but yeah, you also need to make sure that we avail ourselves of the, of the resources, because a lot of people talk about the disparity in access for black men or black communities. Yep. And some of that is based on a lack of resources, true enough, but some of it is also based on the resources are there, but we won't access them. Mm-hmm. And so when I talk about disparities in access, I'm talking both and not either or. See, um, you, I'm so glad you touched on that. Um, black men, brothers, go to the doctor, Yes. go to the dentist. If you if you're in a career field that you enjoy, you're probably salaried. You probably have some type of medical. You paying for it. Um, this used to be me. Uh, I'm a teacher now. Man, my first five six years, I probably never went to the doctor. Maybe a checkup, but that was it. Until I gained too much weight, I changed my diet drastically, and I felt something wrong because I never get sick. Then mm-hmm. I went to the doctor, and then I was like. They were like, oh, you know, if you would have seen us sooner, blah, blah, blah. When I heard that, I sat and thought, what runs in my family? What's on my mom's side of the family? What's on my dad's side of the family? And then now with more, I'm seeing more black men just in the public sphere speak up about going to the doctor and remaining healthy. That's something I definitely stay on top of because I now I know I'm getting at that age where, you know, I don't feel the same. I don't move the same. I know some of that comes with age and me being out of shape. But now I'm so in tune with my body because I go to the doctor. So I know when something is really, really wrong and it's like, okay, shoot, this is really wrong. Or, hey, I've been to the doctor for this before. I know what I need to do to knock this out, something over the counter. Because you also get your own little experiences. But more importantly, those of you with families, you're showing your kids, hey, this is how we take care of ourselves. You're showing your wife hey, I'm taking care of myself. You know how women love to worry about us. So (laughs) just those small things, man, it it normally doesn't take long. Trust me, these doctors be in and out now. But definitely something you should take advantage of um, and utilize these programs. Um, I'm, Man, I got to see if South Carolina has some of this stuff (laughs) because I know some people that could use it. Um, Now, you are also an adjunct professor and clinical faculty at Temple University for the Department of Psychology? I am. And I've been in that role for 11 years. And I'm going to tell you, man, if I don't do anything else, I'm going to do that, right? Because (laughs) I love being on campus. You know, COVID, man, took it out of me, man. We're doing all this Zoom. I'm like, being on Zoom all day. Can't connect. And then teaching on Zoom at night, man, I felt bad for the kids. I felt bad for, you know, for my teenage son who, who had to sit there and look at the screen. Yeah. But man, when, when it opened up this past year, I'm going to tell you, it was a joy because I learned so much 
from the young people. And if you step wrong, trust me, man, they, they all put their phones out. They they fact check you right away. Yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> so you better be on top of your stuff, as you know. But I love it. And so uh, uh, the, the, the adjunct professor part is really me uh, doing a teaching class. I teach developmental psychology, which is my favorite. I also teach psychology and law for seniors who are looking to go into uh, uh, you know, some type of grad program, either law school or something like that. But one of my favorite things to do in, as, is my clinical faculty role where I get to supervise mm-hmm. doctoral students at Temple who are gonna be our future psychologists. I love that. It's a small class of some of the top students in the country that come from all around the country and I get a chance to influence our future leaders and that's as you know as a teacher yeah that is the not only the greatest privilege but also the greatest responsibility and it's awesome because we get a chance to pour into people Mm -hmm. and so many people have poured into me when I was younger and even now uh, just because I'm you know mature (laughs) (laughs) because I'm mature I don't have there's still there's still a need for mentors Yes. And so I'm so glad when you said, you know, hey, I, I'm looking for one because I love that role and I still have on myself. And so that's what I love about being at Temple. It's an inner city school. It's urban. You know, it's got a, a, a great history as being a research institution. But uh, more than that, um, it is a community um, that is uh, right there in North Philadelphia, you know, right there in the hood, you know, and, and it's, it's creating opportunities for all people. And so I really cherish uh, my role as a, a university uh, professor and faculty. It's interesting how, you know, you began by talking about where you came from and knowing who you are. And now you're in your professional field and it ties directly into who you are, because I'm hearing you say you love what you do. That's not something I hear often. Yeah. <laughs> right, or or at least not with a huge smile on it. Like I love teaching, but some, I, I give you half a smile with that sometimes. But like you, <laughs> because I do. But it's like, oh, you start thinking yeah. about it. But you were over there, like super excited, yeah, and and just in love with what you do. Um, how how did you know that you know this was for you, or that you you loved what you were doing? Great question. And um, as I reflected uh, over the the years and looking at how just how blessed I am, um, I in, in my professional career, I have not really sought a position. Um, I've had, you know, uh, what do they call those people uh, when they come looking for you? Uh, no, not the cops. Recruit. <laughs> yeah, recruits. <laughs> Please not the cops. <laughs> you got those organizations that are, they all they do is search the nation for people, right? Headhunters. They used <laughs> yep. to call them headhunters when I was young. Hey, headhunters. But that kind of uh, gives a bad connotation. But yeah, I like recruiters. <laughs> but I've been blessed, man. Um, you know, I knew when I was a preteen, like 12, that I was going to be in service. Hmm. Both my parents servant leaders they they raise i have two older siblings and a younger sibling and they raise us all not by telling us what we're going to do but by taking us everywhere where they served mm. uh, we were passengers in the car we were there at the soup kitchens we were there um, in the churches we were in the community as my parents served um, and so it was there was not a an instruction of this is what you're going to be when you grow up it was watching people that I admire and people who were my heroes, my dad and my mom do what they do. And it always involved helping someone else. 
So I knew I was going to do that. You know, now I'm 12, so I didn't know what that meant. Right. I didn't know psychologists, you know, whatever, whatever. But as I got older, I kept finding opportunities, or maybe I should say opportunities kept finding me. I'm not sure, chicken egg here. But, <laughs> but yeah, and so I embraced that, and it fit my personality because I've always been a giver. And I've always been someone who looked around to see who are the vulnerable in my midst? Who are the vulnerable in my family? Who are the vulnerable in my community, in my school? And why is that? And, and then what can I do to, to either lighten the load, make their day a little better, or do something that is helpful? And so as I got older and that, that attitude matured and turned into opportunity, and opportunity turned into education, and education turned into commitment, and commitment turned into perseverance, and perseverance turned into being able to stand up even in a difficult situation, it all ended up going back to service. Mm. It all ended up back in service, Rob. And so I, I knew at an early age, and then it's like that tree that is growing and blossoming and the leaves are getting stronger and all that. And then you start seeing fruit, yep. right? Because people planted in me, right? Mm. And, and they watered me and they pruned the leaves, huh? And, <laughs> and they did all this stuff without my really knowing. I'm just a kid growing up, Yep. right? Next thing you know, you're stepping into your purpose. A little awkwardly at first, right? Yeah. <laughs> then they don't criticize you when you make mistakes. And so I had a great background in that people allowed me to make mistakes, be human, mess it up sometimes, but allow me to keep going and tweak here, tweak there. So, so yeah, I knew at an early age, I was going to be a servant leader before I knew what that meant. Man, your your story, man, I feel like you, you'd be in my classroom or something. Uh, <laughs> your story hinges heavily on exposure. Yeah. And, you know, for those of you out there listening, think about your childhood and what you were exposed to, like actually exposed to, not on yeah. a screen or in a movie, but like outside of your house being exposed yeah. to. And think about... First of all, the fact that you remember those things. And secondly, think about how they've impacted your life. Um, as Dr. Jean just said, I taught in a I taught a program, uh, shout out to Freedom Schools, but I was doing a program in, in North Charleston, South Carolina, and you know, one day we were talking, and now if you don't know about Charleston, South Carolina, there's multiple beaches in the area. There's like four or five beaches. And we asked the kids how many of them been to the beach. And like out of like 12 or 12 to 15 kids, like two raised their hand. And they're teenagers. They're like 13, 14, 15. I'm like, I don't even I didn't I didn't even grow up in Charleston. I grew up in Spartanburg and I still went to the beach every summer. And mm -hmm. I'm just like, wow, some of these kids are only literally about 50 minutes from the from the beach. Never been. Ask them how many times they went to an aquarium. Never been. How many times have you left your city? you know like or have you ever left the state and then they name another city and say is that in my state you know that that makes me sad because i'm like i understand that being a parent is hard i'm not a parent but i understand that it's tough it's difficult because i teach the kids so i see some of the effects of that but you got to make room to expose them take them away from this digital stuff at times and get them out there to really see the world and people and people operating in the world and how we yeah. connect and build and 
you know, create real relationships with people because we physically are showing up. It can make a huge, huge, huge difference. I wouldn't even be the person I am today if it weren't for some of the things that my parents just exposed me to. Um, So I'm really glad you shared that experience because I think that is severely lacking. Um, and a lot of you're areas. right, Rob. And I think the challenge, man, and, and you're blessed with parents too, who did what they could. And, and most parents, and I figured this out a long time ago, man, especially in my field of being a clinical psychologist, most people on any given day, most people are doing the absolute best they know how to do. Yep. Um, we may be uh, observers and onlookers, and we may have some, some critiques and some judgments that are a little unfair because that's not our life. Uh, But what I have realized in working with young people and working uh, with their parents and working with educators is exactly what you're saying. You don't you don't know and you can't give what you don't know and you can't give what you don't have. And so if those parents were not exposed, now we got, you know, in what I call intergenerational transference. Right. Whatever was passed down to you, you're going to pass down to someone else. And so some of those parents that did not know what to do because they weren't shown what to do. And then I also look, especially in, in, in BIPOC communities, you know, black, uh, Latino, you know, and, and other uh, people of color or other marginalized communities, so to speak. Um, many times they're working two jobs, three jobs, both parents working, They man, they hustling, they getting their grind on. And before you know it, you got a teenager. <laughs> yep. Right. And you didn't do those things when they were three, four, five and six, because you're trying to put food on the table and all that. So I, I think you make a great point, Rob. And I think what we can do with the platforms that we have is encourage parents to you don't have to do everything at the same time. But, you know, do something outside of your norm for your kids. I used to tell parents all the time, has your kid, have your kids ever seen you laugh? Have you ever been silly with your kid? Right. Have, you, have your kid ever just, you know, saw you clowning? You know, simple things that we can expose our kids to because, you know, you may not have the resources to get on a, a plane or a train and go here or go there. Yep. Um, but man, just just letting them see your humanity, letting them see, you know, the museum, you know, down the street, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. So I think those are the kind of things, man, that we can encourage. And if we have, uh, uh, you know, resources that we can share with others and, and help parents, you know, that should be a foundation, man. You know, for those parents who can't afford to get their kids to the beach or some other place like that, yep. we should have a foundation that helps parents uh, with resources. Uh, and, and resources also, you know, time is also a resource, right? Yep. You know, if you work in two or three jobs, you can't take time off to be with your kids, man. That is sad. Yeah, it's sad. Um, and it's scary because, like you said, next thing you know, you got a teenager and it's like, what do yeah. I do with this kid? Like, exactly. <laughs> it used to be easy. Now you're like, you like, you got more expensive as you got older. Um, That's right. <laughs> and I, I'll just drop this 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 on you, ladies and gentlemen. Um, start with your family. One of the things I did every summer, part of it was we get rid of these kids. But I know part of it was exposure was I got sent somewhere every summer to a family member's house. Um, and I have more memories than I could even talk about on this show just from going there, being in different parts, you know, of the different parts of the state, going to different states, having that bonding time. So now that I'm older, you know, I have one, I have my family ties. I'm really close with my aunts, my uncles and my cousins because we spent so much time together, but I also know their cities. Like actually when I got my first job was in, uh, Somerville, South Carolina, and my family is from Charleston, which is about 30, 40 minutes away. So 
I, you know, I went there, but I was comfortable. I knew everything about the place. I grew up there, basically. So that exposure helped alleviate some of that fear, and it just gave me some of the tools I needed to survive later on when I got older. Fabulous. <laughs> so you are also the CEO of Mental Health Success Boost, LLC. Yes. yes. Tell us all about it. Well, as I was traveling around the country doing uh, workshops and trainings on uh, the impact of trauma in communities of color, uh, the impact of trauma uh, with uh, black and uh, black boys and black men. I also did some work with with uh, women of color, black women and black girls. Um, it just seemed it makes sense that you know we don't always understand that mental health is a good thing. Sometimes we conflate the terms mental health and mental illness. Yes, as if they're the same thing, and they're not. Um, mental health is what you want. Physical health is what you want. Emotional health is what you want. Uh, mental illness is something that we're trying to uh, work through and mitigate, but also help people understand that uh, it is okay to not be okay because we have resources. And so by setting up Mental Health Success Boost, that name is intentional because I wanted people to know that we can boost your mental health by simply doing the things that you know Rob and I are talking about today, being exposed to positive people, places, and things. You know, your biggest stressors are people, places, and things, those three things. I your, believe your viewers and your listeners, if they just think right now, who, what are your three biggest stressors? People, places, and things. So if we can also add some protective factors, positive things, like having a positive social uh, network, Right, you've already named some people who were influencing you to be positive. I've had that same thing, you know, opportunities. And so, training, research, um, those are the kind of things that Mental Health Success Boost uses that information and that knowledge to share with others. Been on a big uh, campaign the last couple of years to really kind of target uh, faith leaders and clergy, you know, who have really uh, I consider faith leaders and school teachers and educators, I consider them first responders, just like I do firefighters, uh, emergency service workers, and law enforcement. Why? Because you guys don't run from problems. You guys are right there in the thick of it. <laughs> yeah. For, for six hours a day, you are all the, those kids know, right? You and your, your fellow teachers, educators, and all that. So I wanted to do something that would support that group of people who I think go on sun. You know, and of course, we have a lot of people supporting firefighters and law enforcement and all that, and that's great. But not as many supporting teachers, educators, administrators, and and faith leaders, clergy, pastors, that kind of thing. And so that's what really gave me the idea to start Mental Health Success Boost. So I work very closely uh, with with uh, uh, faith leaders and the Muslim and and Christian uh, communities, uh, non denominational, interfaith, you name it, um, because that's where a lot of people of color go first for support. Yep. They don't call up Dr. Wright. They don't go see a psychiatrist. They probably start with a friend or a family member. Yep. They may go to their pastor, right? They definitely go to their teacher. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I know you guys get it, right? And so why not equip those first responders with education, with resources and support so that they know that they are not alone. And so for me, making sure that I'm supporting those people that are more likely to be accessed in the black community. I saw that as one of the first tasks for mental health success to boost. 
Well, thank you so much for your services with that. Um, you, you touched on a lot of valid points. And resources, resources. We're always looking for resources. Resources that are easy to find, easy to access, and easy to utilize. That can just be such a, a difficult thing to find at times. But, you know, we have people out there like you doing what you're doing to help us with that. Um, so one more thing that got me super excited when I saw this, since I'm in the field of media myself, is that you also have a media company called Right Media Company, correct? I do. I do. And, uh, that was the first one that I actually, um, developed and it, it's interesting when I first started doing the the workshops and the and the the trainings and all those things, mm-hmm. um, I was looking for a mechanism by which to do it globally, right? And this was before the pandemic, and so I had not become really good at uh, you know the Zoom and all these different platforms that people do. Yeah. And so <laughs> I started working with individuals who would fly me out to wherever the you know city that they were doing, and they would record me. And then they would say, oh, by the way, do you mind if we record you? <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, it's a little late now. <laughs> you, know, you know, let me get that in a contract. And so I started putting in the contract, okay, if you're going to tape it or video or record something like that, I, could, I have rights. I, I could look at the edit version and all this sharing. And then I was like, wow, you know, I'm not really, this is not my area of expertise. So I put together the right media company and had some people who that is their expertise. <laughs> Right. Come and, and do that so that wherever I go now, there is a, a video or that that is automatic. It's in the contract. You know, I get first rights. And if you're going to use it, if I'm doing something like some kind of uh, uh, webinar or something like that, then, you know, people don't just start using my likeness, using my words, you yeah. know, because what I found, Rob, is that I was showing up on YouTube and stuff and people were getting paid for what I was saying. Oh, no. what I was doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm like, okay, I'm just giving away intellectual property <laughs> left and right. So I couldn't figure out, um, you know, what the issue was. And so that's why I formed that company, believe it or not, actually to, to protect my interests. And then it turned into something really fun and, and really exciting. And uh, so that's how that company formed it. And, and so that one really allowed me to, uh, uh, I had my own uh a TV program for a while, you know, that was on cable, you know, and that was fun. And so those kind of things happened because a friend of mine said, Hey doc, you know, I saw you on YouTube, man. That great job. I'm like YouTube. I'm not on, <laughs> I'm not on I go to a YouTube channel. <laughs> so, so I couldn't, I couldn't figure out, I couldn't figure out uh, how that happened. And so, uh, yeah, it was just, it was just crazy. <laughs> And uh, that's how that that's how that company started. That that's interesting. You found a solution to a problem you didn't even know you had until you had it, um, and it's a business. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a very um, very interesting 
This goes um, to show you that we don't always plan what happens in life. Yeah, like that that's a very interesting origin story. Like something happened to you. And you're like, you know what? I'm just gonna start a whole company to prevent this from happening again. That is hilarious. Cause I'm over here thinking about, you know, why did I really start some of these things? Like, did something happen that I don't remember? Thing, I didn't know enough to know I couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? You knew see, that's one that's another thing. Um, and I, I talk about this all the time. Like utilize your connections and the people around you y'all we've been talking about resources this whole yes. time like you know if you don't know how to do it there's someone out there that one you can probably find a volunteer or two you can find someone affordable to help you do it and if you're cheap like me sometimes <laughs> go to youtube university and uh-huh. study and right. learn and practice and fail or bring somebody in to yeah. train you and then let yeah. them go on their merry way. There's so many ways you can do it, but you don't have to just completely isolate yourself and say, all right, right. I got to do it. It's all got to be me. I am quick to tell you, like my friends fussing me all the time. Are you paying somebody to do that? Man, you ain't got to pay nobody. <laughs> yes, I do, because I'm not going to do it. So <laughs> I don't know how to do it. I don't want to do it. The other thing is if you pay somebody, there's some accountability, right? Right, that part. You do it yourself, <laughs> you get what you get. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? But but it's it's funny because you mentioned that my very first website, which was way many years ago, uh, I got because a friend I you know I was still doing therapy sessions then and all that, and and I was helping this brother out and and he's like you know doc man I you know I'm a little hard and he was having a rough time. I, the sliding scale was too much, right? Mm. So I was like, well man, don't worry about it. He's like, no no doc, I got to pay you something. I'm like. Well, you know, man, really, it's okay. He said, I'm a web developer. Can I develop a website for you? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I didn't know I needed one. This was 20 years ago. So, I mean, it's a long time ago. Oof. And so it was bartering. Yeah. So think about how that used to be a common thing in the Black community, mm-hmm. right? So this brother didn't have money, but he had a skill set that he that he thought could help me, and it did, Right. Um, and, and so that's the kind of thing that I think we need to remind each other. We don't always have to have everything. Yep. We don't have to know everything, but we, we, we definitely know somebody in our community that probably knows. It. And so we have to get back to connecting with each other. That was the whole community efficacy that I think has been lost, that we used to solve our own problems. We supported each other mm-hmm. and we had resources, not a lot of money, but we had people resources. We had intellectual resources. We had spiritual resources and we use everything that we had as a people, right? To make sure that that next one, that's why we have so many blended families, right? That's why we got cousins, play cousins. It ain't really our blood, right? Yep. We grew up with, but them's our cousin, right? Mm-hmm. We got all that because that's what we were able to do to make sure that the next person had a fair shot. So I agree with you, Rob, you know, I, I, I don't mind paying people, mm-hmm. right? And I don't mind staying in my lane and not being the expert. Um, but at the same time, uh, people find themselves really reaching out and helping each other. And I think you got a group of young people that are probably going to be uh, really benefiting from a lot of the things that you do. So, uh, you know, keep me posted. <laughs> I, I shall. I shall. You know, and then when I get to your level, then the kids will be at the level that I'm at right now and we can still stay connected. <laughs> you Man, you you on my level. We we just in different chairs. That's all. <laughs> Man, I don't know. I got to think I got to talk to my girlfriend about Philly. <laughs> i gotta finish losing this weight first though because that food gonna get me but you you brought up something man that i think is missing as well um and you can kind of i can just kind of tell as a teacher the community aspect 
I mean, everywhere that I lived growing up, I knew who lived there. I knew the three houses across the street from me, who they were, knew the neighbor to the left, knew the neighbor to the right, knew the neighbor yes. behind us. And when I say knew, called them by name, have probably mm-hmm. eaten dinner at their house or sat outside while my parents were talking to them and playing with their kids, like really tight knit community. Like people tell the comedians tell this joke now <laughs> and it makes me feel old, but it's like, you know, you, you out playing and you do something you ain't supposed to do. Miss Johnson say, "Ooh, I'ma tell your mama," or Miss <laughs> right. Johnson to tear your butt up, and then you go home, and then your mama tear your butt up because Miss right. Johnson had to tear your butt up, and right. she done told on you. Like, right. <laughs> I always felt like I had my mom or dad around me because I knew the community around me. And you know, now that I'm older and I look at life, you know, work, stress, making ends meet, I know it must have been so helpful for my mom to be like, "Hey." You know, I want to pick up an extra shift. Can you watch my kids? Sure. You know, here's some money. I'll cook dinner. Or matter of fact, I'll watch your kids next weekend and I'll cook. You know, like that kind of stuff. Just that little, that just be, just being able to alleviate that pressure just by working together on such the smallest scale. You know, watch the kids. All y'all need a break from the kids. Everybody right. does. Right. Like just that small thing to just give you that little bit of breathing room to take some of that pressure off so you don't feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulder. Just... You know, my, I can't tell you how many times my car is broken down, but it feels good to know I have six to ten people that I'm comfortable with saying, hey, because I don't like, I'm that's me, I don't like to ask nobody for nothing. Hey, man, right. you know, can you give me a ride to and fro? Like, mm-hmm. you're right, that is heavily missing because we, we on these devices and we're yeah. not actually connecting with people. Like, yeah. you should ask, I think, do this, y'all. You got a young person in your life, nephew, cousin, somebody like that, Next time you go visit them, ask them if they know who their neighbors are. Hmm. Ask them if yeah, they know who their good. neighbors are. Yeah. God yeah. forbid there's an emergency. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I yeah. remember helping an old lady across the street one time. She was my downstairs neighbor in an apartment complex. But, yeah. I Sorry, I'm, I'm going on a rant here, but I do no, miss that. No, man, but it makes community. sense because, you know, trust and credibility, all those things can rebuild our communities. I mean, I, I can't speak for, for where you are, but in Philadelphia, we, we're having some challenges right now. Mm-hmm. We got serious gun violence. We have a lot of uh, folks who, uh, who are down on our youth and, and, and because they think they're the problem for everything. We got people who don't respect their elders and all this other stuff, but we're not a monolith. We, we, we have a, a wide variety of cultures within the black culture. We have a wide variety of, of talents and, and abilities within, you know, if you think about all the, the, the value that we bring to each other, hmm. why wouldn't I want to know my neighbor? Right. Why wouldn't I want to speak to that elderly person above or below me and, and help them with their groceries? And what is keeping us from being the humans that we are? Mistrust, uh, those devices you talked about, Rob, you know, being so connected to technology that's in our pocket and in our hand that we forget how to even have a conversation you know with each other that kind of stuff allows us to feel like um i belong yeah and we belong together because i can tell you what's lost on a lot of people they don't realize this and you don't have to take you don't have to study science to know this human beings are interdependent that means we need each other yes and that need does not make me vulnerable and a lot of, you're right, Rob, a lot of black men, especially, don't want to ask nobody for help. They don't want to ask for directions. Look, I ain't no problem. When I'm lost, I'll pull up and ask somebody for direction. 
right? Now that we got these GPS and everything, we really ain't asking oh, nobody. Oh, we ain't talking to nobody. <laughs> we just gonna keep driving around in circles because guess what? <laughs> GPS can take you the wrong direction. Yes. But but we have forgotten the human element. And so uh, I appreciate what you're saying and I agree with you. And uh, we definitely uh, can, can rebuild our community simply by recognizing each other's humanity. Yeah. Um, and, you know, back to the social media thing, you have to remember, be careful of who and what you follow, because when you choose to follow an entity, whether it be a company or a person, they're now controlling what you're taking in yes. every day, morning, noon, night. That's why I've I've made a complete shift. I used to look at crazy stuff. Now mm -hmm. I have one or two interesting things from some of these big companies out there because uh, every now and again they'll post something good. But I'm very careful with how much I consume and what I consume because it affects your entire mood. And also it can it can make you more fearful than you probably should be. I mean, there I I can't tell you the last time I saw something truly positive on the news or on social media. But I know that because I go outside every day, it's not like that every five seconds. It does happen, and I'm grateful to be aware, but I'm not led by, oh, my gosh, if I go over here, this is going to happen. This is automatically going to happen. Because that's another reason, like you said, um, would you, you said trust and credibility. You know, if you keep seeing this same type of person on the news, and they're always associated with these things, you have for someone you never even spoke to or a culture you'd, you've never even interacted with, you have they have no credibility credibility to you and now you don't trust them based on something you saw on the TV right. that may or may not even be true right. so you got to be very careful with what you're taking in now you mentioned something earlier you said back when you were still doing sessions so did you yeah. have your own practice and then you transitioned what was that like for you yes I had my own practice and uh, but first before I had my own practice I worked uh, in another practice so when I first got out of graduate school, my first uh, clinical practice was joining a already established practice. Mm -hmm. And so that was great because I learned the ropes and, and saw what I was good at and saw what I needed to work on and all that. And I went to a clinical program that I tell you, I tell people this all the time, especially uh, doctoral students or people seeking to get into a doctoral program to be a, a therapist or something like that, masters, whatever. Um, that I went to a program that required that we that we participated in individual and group therapy. That was part of it because they wanted us to experience what we're asking others to do. Makes sense. Yes. And so, and I've carried that on since then. And so I've always had mentors. I've always had uh, people that I could bounce things off, but it's also good to get your own checkup from the neck up, even when you're doing this. And so I went from working there and having my own practice for many, many years and then selling that when I moved to Philadelphia. So uh, I've been in Philadelphia now over 20 plus years, but, and so I keep a very small practice that is only for individuals. I, I pick and choose because I just don't have the time as you can imagine, but I still do a lot of clinical work because I get keep sharp. I still go to the conferences and I still get my continuing education units and my clinical stuff. I still keep that, still stay licensed, mm -hmm. even though I'm you know, pulled in a lot of different directions that are good, but there are some people who they, they, you know, they still want, they want me. Right. And so I deal with faith leaders who are like, you know, let me, let me get you. And um, if I can, I refer them to other colleagues uh, in the BIPOC community and make sure that, you know, um, we share the wealth. There's plenty of pieces of the pie. 
and um, I cannot see everybody. And so I make sure that I have a list of black and brown professionals that I can refer people to, you know, um, and, and I take that seriously. Why? Because we have to look out for each other, yeah. you know? Um, and so, yes, I still do a little clinical. I keep maybe less than 10 clients, you know, that I work with. Um, but when I get somebody in that's really wanting to, uh, to step up and, and I like, what do you want? They, most of them say, you know, I'd like to have an African-American or I'd like to have a woman or I'd like to have a, a brother or something like that. I know people in all those categories that I could, if a, if a black man wants to see a black man, I can refer you to one. Right. And so, uh, I stay, I stay on the clinical piece, but I also refer to as many of my colleagues as I can. Back to that community piece. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I only have a couple more questions for okay. you. Um, so, hmm, where should I go? Tell us about the man who inspired you, your father. Wow. Man, we don't have enough time to talk about him. I'll keep it short. My father passed in, in 2009, April 15th, 2009 at 1023 a.m. Uh, I remember it like it was yesterday because he he was everything to me. Uh, my two brothers were there. Um, my uh, my father's uh, 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 adopted brother, not adopted legally, but someone he always called his brother, mm -hmm. who uh, he was our, our spiritual uh, uh, leader. And so he was at the foot of my father's bed. My brother and I were on one side. My eldest brother was on my, the right side of my father. And, and he always inspired us no matter what. And even at that time, when you would think he would be focused on you know, transitioning and all that. He still had words of wisdom, even <laughs> though he could barely speak, mm -hmm. right? And so that's the kind of guy he was. I remember when he first got sick and he knew I was working on, on my first book and then uh, I would take it to him and I would say, dad, check it out. You know, he edited and do different things. And he told me, he said, yeah, this was great. He said, it's too academic, make it plain. And so I would go back and I would rewrite, you know, and I bring it back. He said, okay, that, now you sound like a preacher. What, what you trying to tell you? <laughs> so, okay, I don't want that. Let me go back. So I go back and eventually, you know, I, I hit that, that sweet spot, according to him. And, and, he, you know, and it's interesting because I brought the manuscript and I laid it on his, his bed in hospice and he couldn't read it by then, but he just tapped it. He put his hand on it and tapped it because he knew that I had fulfilled uh, what he and I had talked about when he could talk and when he could participate. So again, this is the same guy that when I grew up, he was always, sir, I remember my brothers and I, we laugh about this now. We would sometimes get, find, have to give up our bed because dad done brought somebody home from prison. <laughs> <laughs> and back in those days, you know, we didn't know it was like, oh, dad, yeah, dad done brought home somebody. <laughs> There was always some stranger under our uh, sitting at our table eating food, you know. Mm -hmm. And mom just got so she's a lady that asked your father, you know. And, and so that was a different time, obviously. But why why is it a different time? Why can't we do that now? And so I, I grew up watching a man who lived his theology, a man who lived his religion, a man who put into practice his humanity. And so there wasn't a lot of sitting at my father's knee for instruction. It wasn't that intentional. It was intentional from the standpoint of don't just do as I say, do as I do. It was also just love people. If you just love people, 
you can most of the time make the right decision yeah. about those interactions because you're not going to do something to somebody that's heinous that you love. You're not going to steal from them. You're not going to lie to them. You're not going to treat them poorly because you love them. So why can't we have that type of connection with people that we call strangers? So that's why he's my hero. That's why he is the person that I refer to. You know, all the sports heroes that I've had in my life, none of them compare to my father. All of the intellectual people, giants in the field, none of them compare to my father. Now, my father wasn't an athlete, so I'm not saying he could play ball. I'm saying in terms of how he lived his life. He certainly is not the most intelligent man in the world, you know, but let me tell you, he was very, very bright. He had a doctorate in psychology and one in theology. So, you know, this man was someone who um, also shared with me the mistakes he made. Now, what father does that? What, what person says, you know, son, I haven't always been <laughs> what you think I am, you know, and what you're going through now, let me tell you why I know how you feel about it. You know, that kind of stuff really helped me see that you can reach your greatest heights, but you don't have to take yourself too seriously. You don't have to take yourself, be able to laugh at yourself and with yourself and be comfortable in your own skin to the point where you can sit with kings and queens and you can sit with paupers and it don't matter, everybody in between because you have a love for humanity. And that's what he taught me. And God rest his soul. Thank yes. You. Yes. <laughs> he just he, he just taught me something yeah. <laughs> through you. <laughs> oh man, Dr. Gene, we've been having a great conversation, man, and I'm going to ask you one more thing. Mm -hmm. Um um well, two one and a half things. One, I want you to leave all the brothers out there watching um with some words of wisdom and words of encouragement for whatever they may be going through or for mm -hmm. even the person who may be interested in your field coming in behind you. And then mm -hmm. once you do that, tell us about anything you have going on. I know you're an author. I know we didn't get to it, but talk about being an, um, an author of your book and any mm -hmm. workshops or anything you got coming up. Okay. I think I'll start with words of, of wisdom to, to people who may be watching and listening, who may be struggling. And the reason I say that is because um, one of the books that I wrote is called Find Strength in Your Struggle discover the miracle in you. And what I talk about in that is really um, the fact that we should not spend a lot of time and energy trying to avoid struggle. Struggle is inevitable in life, right? So embrace the struggle. Mm. You're going to learn something from it. it's going to, and a lot of people, a lot of young people don't like to hear that, that, that trials and tribulations make you strong. So I'm not even going to go biblical on you like that. What I'm going to say is if you want to be a good runner, you can't, you're not going to roll out your bed and just start running a marathon. You have to build up. You have to do a couple miles here and there. You want to be a sprinter? You got to go to that track and you got to practice every day. And it's going to be painful. That ballet dancer, all we see is he, him or her doing some wonderful dance at Carnegie Hall. We weren't there for practice with the broken toenails and the pulled muscles and the falling time after time after time. That struggle. Yeah. That bodybuilder, that football player, that basketball player, whoever you're admiring, that piano player, all of them struggle. But what we see is what we think is that finished product. No, struggle is inevitable. Whatever you want to be in life, there's going to be some challenges. Embrace those challenges. And the way that I try to embrace it and what I talk about in the book is that struggle is inevitable, but life happens. And when it does, God does his greatest work in you. 
Now that doesn't reflect upon whatever belief system you have. It just means that we have a core connection to a higher power and you can access that power. And that's that miracle that is in each of us. And so, so I understand and one of my favorite quotes is uh, by Mark Twain, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. I was fortunate. I discovered my why early in life and just walked to the light and kept walking to the light. Simon Sinek does a whole thing, YouTube and, and, and TED Talks and everything about your why. Your why is what makes us who we are. A lot of people, when you introduce yourself, what is the first thing we do? We start giving you our resume. Yep. Simon Sinek says, no, no, no. Your resume results of your why. Your resume is your what. And your what is what happens when you walk into your why. Huh? And so when you follow your why, your what will start stacking up, brother, like you, then you get that CV that I got. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's why I don't tell people. I don't tell people what my what is because they'll figure, you can Google me. You can yeah. figure that out. It's more important that you know my why. And, and hopefully the, the people on this call, the people that are watching, the people who will see this down the road will understand that my why is the reason I've never worked a day in my life. That's my why. And there's nothing that happens in and of that why that is too heavy a yoke, that's too hard, that's too difficult, because it's going to connect me to more of my why. And before you know it, you got 20 years of what that adds up. <laughs> and so I don't spend time telling people what I am, what I've achieved, what my degree. No, 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 no. No. When I, because I'm telling you, man, people all have a story. Yes. Rob, you have a story and I can't wait to learn more about it. And that's why we go to movies. That's why we read books. We want to see ourselves in the movie. We want to see ourselves in the book. When we don't, it's boring. We lay it down. So that's, that's the kind of thing. And so that, that, that fine strength in your struggle book that I wrote actually was inspired by the people who were residents at a state incarcerated facility, at state correction facility. Those brothers inspired me to write that book, Find Strength in Your Struggle, right? The one I'm working on now is called Healthy Pastor, Healthy Church, Who Comforts the Spiritual Leader? As you and I talked about earlier, I have a, I have a love in my heart for the faith community and clergy and pastors and teachers and educators and principals as first responders. And so uh, hopefully this book will be, I'll have it complete. I'm working with a co-author um, um, and that book will be completed by the end of this year and that'll be out there. Uh, I'm also doing a lot of trainings around the country. Uh, have several coming up. Uh, one, I'll, be, I'll be in Utah the second week in uh, August. Uh, we'll be in uh, Sacramento <clears throat> after that. Um, just came back from Chicago. Before that, I was in Brooklyn. So God is good, you know, um, and, and I'm able to walk into my why, even though I have a, a day job, <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, fall semester is about to start. So, you know, I may not be this happy and go lucky in about, in about two months. So we'll see. <laughs> you know, um, I do research, you know, uh, I, I do a lot of work with, with some pharmaceutical companies. I won't name them for obvious reasons, but so I get a chance to do a lot th that is community facing. And so that's what I want to say to the brothers and sisters out there, especially to the brothers who, who may have been judged harshly, uh, even in their own families. Um, sometimes we're hard on each other. And, and, and I can tell you when I embrace the fact that being black in America was harder than I thought, even though I have to admit I've had some privileges. 
that some of my brothers didn't have. But it was a trip to Brazil that really brought it to, to you know, round to me, Rob. And that is, for the first time, when I got off that plane in Brazil, for the first time in my life, I wasn't a black man. I was just a man. Wow. The air felt different in my lungs. The way people looked at me, the way they treated me was different. And I was there for two and a half weeks. It was blissful. Man. Right? Just walking around, blending in. And then I landed back in New York City. <laughs> Take me back. <laughs> man, I didn't even get off the plane before I was a black man again. <laughs> didn't, even get to, didn't even exit the plane before they reminded me, yeah, you're an American now, homie. You know? <laughs> so I say that because I've learned to laugh, even with pain. I've learned to keep pushing even through obstacles. I've learned that, you know, it's not always going to feel good, look good, or be good, but that ain't got nothing to do with me. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep going for it. And so there are lots of people out there that will try to discourage you. But me personally, I think there are just as many, maybe more, who will get in line to support you. Share your dream. Tell people your why. Practice that elevator speech. You know, what can you say to somebody to tell them who you are between the first and third floor? That's all you get. After that, people turn you off. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your elevator speech, right? <laughs> Those are the things. And here's the thing I tell my 16-year-old son. Don't spend time trying to be somebody else. You will fail. Yeah. Your expertise is in being yourself. But you can't do that if you don't know who you are. That brings me back to the Mark Twain quote. The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. You had no control over the first part. Our DNA is our DNA. Our parents are our parents. We're raised wherever we're raised. That second part, though, find out your why. And don't sleep, don't eat, don't do anything trying to be somebody else. Find out your why. And when you walk in, I'm telling you, do what you love. Don't do anything for money. Do what you love. If you love it, you'll do it all the time. If you do it all the time, you're going to become very good at it. And when you become very good at what you love, people will stand in line to pay you. That's all I got to say, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Gene, thank you for setting it off. <laughs> I'm not even going I'm not even going to be long-winded with this. Thank y'all for continuing to join us for Black Man Day. We know you got some gems, some nuggets, and some tools that can you can utilize, you know, from this conversation. And that's what it's all about. Uh, we love y'all. Y'all take care of yourselves.